Hey, I'm Johanna Wagstaff. And hi there, I'm Rohit Joseph. And we're asking for 10 minutes of your day to go through the 10 things that the UN recommends we can all do when it comes to climate change. Please don't leave. No. And also the things (laughs) aren't new. We are just wired to not do them. We promise you to help you figure out your brains and you and your people can make better choices to combat climate change. 10 Minutes to Save the Planet is available now on CBC Listen and everywhere you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Laura Lynch, and you're listening to What on Earth? By now, you've probably heard the pledge, Canada's new commitment to cut even more emissions from the atmosphere within nine years. The new target, a minimum 40% of the amount the country produced in 2005. But fossil fuels still drive so much of the economy, and federal ministers are quick to make another promise to keep supporting oil and gas. But there is going to be a number of decades where oil is still going to be in demand. If the end goal for some people is to shut down the fossil fuel industry, then no, they won't be happy with what I'm proposing. This week, pledges and promises. Can Canada make the cut and still prime the pump for those petroleum-producing industries? So the new target is for 2030, as I said, but the ultimate goal is to reach net zero emissions by 2050. That's still a very long way away, a whole generation in fact. Today's young people will shoulder more of the environmental burden than their parents. You know, we're just seeing a lot of catastrophic scenarios right now. You know, the situation is very dire. Albert Lalande is 19, lives in Montreal, and seems to bear the weight of the world on his young shoulders. You know, I'm entering law uh, next year, and, and one of the things that I feel the most is just really this pressure. Why should I pursue a degree? Why should I ever think of, of buying myself a house? And yet he's still fighting for big change, organizing protests, even joining a lawsuit against the federal government. He knows things can't happen overnight. I mean, I'm not crazy. I think I'm realistic. I do not expect everyone to abandon their cars by tomorrow. But I think that, you know, the longer we keep subsidizing the fossil fuel industry with public money, instead of funding the solutions, instead of, of really putting efforts into um, getting out of this situation. So he wants the federal government to do more right now to protect the future for his generation and those to come. It's hard to believe in this government's credibility. This government has bought a pipeline instead of, of actually helping the workers uh, to transition towards more carbon, you know, more climate compatible jobs. And for him, it's not abstract. He says he's already seeing and feeling the impact of a warming planet. Temperatures that were were considered to be really hot in the summer here in Montreal, when I was maybe um, six or seven years old, are now the normal. You know, elders in my community are are deceasing from heat waves. Here in Quebec, a lot of houses get flooded almost every spring now. If we are already feeling that and it's going to get exponentially worse in the coming years, there's just this this broad sense of hopelessness and it's really hard to see meaning in this situation. Underlying Abel Alon's worries are a lot of numbers, including numbers that form part of something that's called the global carbon budget. 
When Ottawa said last week it will reduce emissions by 40 to 45 percent by 2030, it's talking about its share of that special kind of budget. Here to walk us through it is Kirsten Zickfeld, a climate scientist and professor at Simon Fraser University. Hello. Hi. Uh, in simple terms, the idea of a global carbon budget, what exactly does that mean? So the global carbon budget is a limited amount of carbon that we are allowed to burn over time. And what is important to understand is that the budget does not replenish itself. So once it's, it's, it's gone. And I think there are a number of analogies which we could use to explain the carbon budget. Here, the one I would like to use is um, that of a person planning to cross the desert and equipped with a limited amount of water. So here crossing the desert is a metaphor for reaching net zero, which we will need to do in order to limit warming at some point. And to carry that metaphor forward, I guess you can only drink a certain amount of water to make the journey successfully. That is correct. Sort of, they drink more water on one day than their daily share, then they'll have less to drink the next day. But also if they ran out before they actually reach their, their destination, then they will suffer great, great pain. And um, the carbon budget we have will have to last until the point we reach net zero CO2 emissions, which will have to happen by around mid-century. So if we burn more today, we'll have less that we can actually uh, burn in, in, in the near future. And also if we burn through the budget before we actually reach net zero, we will exceed our temperature goal that goes along with that budget and, and suffer more severe consequences from global heating. Now, the, the federal government has made its promise and announced its target, but it's also quite clear about the role it sees the oil and gas industry playing as it tries to achieve the target. I'm wondering what you make of that. So I think the, the carbon budget is, is very helpful to frame this challenge. So with, with this ambitious target, it is um, more or less online with what the IPCC um, says should happen in order to reach net zero by mid-century. So, so, so now the question is, is obviously how, how to, do we get there? And in Canada, we have a number of, of sectors that, that contribute to, to our emissions. In, in order to reach net zero by mid-centuries, we'll have to get down emissions to zero in all of these sectors. So, so again, the more carbon we allocate to one sector, the more painful it's going to be for other sectors. And also it is inconsistent or it is very hard to achieve net zero emissions by mid-century if emissions are not ramped down significantly in, in the oil and gas sector and perhaps even, even continue to expand. In terms of the budget, do you also include not just um, fossil fuels that, that Canada burns and uses domestically, but also those that it exports? Is, is that part of Canada's budget allotment, so to speak? So generally, these um, sort of the carbon budget includes all emissions globally. Um, coming up with, with national carbon budget, it's a more difficult um, task because uh, we'll have to deal with, with issues of, of equity. Some nations such as Canada have a, have a large historical responsibility compared to other nations because we've been burning fossil fuels for um, quite a long time. So developed nations have 
more technology, more funding, more now how to reduce emissions. So it is usually understood that they should shoulder a larger share of the global challenge. Now, Canada so far hasn't hit any of the targets that it's set. If it manages to do it this time around, tell me what you think the world would actually look and feel like. Yeah, so, so, so first of all, um, even if we stay within this carbon budget, the impacts of climate change will be exacerbated in, in the future. So if, if we think of the north, it, it means continuing a melt of permafrost, um, continued loss of sea ice, of glaciers. In coastal regions, it means uh, continued sea level rise. So even if we stay within this, this carbon budget, we will experience continuing climate changes, but they will be a lot less worse than if we do not address the problem. But even if um, we live up to our ambition of limiting warming to one and a half or two degrees, a certain amount of, of adaptations to the ongoing changes will be required. All right, Professor, I appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today. You're welcome. Thank you. Now, cuts in emissions can mean job losses to those who work in the traditional non-renewable energy sector, and they have their own worries about the future. We know that the scale needed and the speed needed to stabilize the climate is very, very big. That's Joey Warnock. She's with Unifor, a union representing about 12,000 people working in oil and gas right across the country. Our members work in the offshore off Newfoundland. They mine bitumen in northern Alberta. They process and refine and upgrade. Our members also manufacture uh, pipe that is used in pipelines. And uh, But here's something you might not expect. Her union agrees with climate scientists like Kirsten Zickfeld. We believe the science and taking what scientists have to say very seriously They've been fairly accurate in their predictions, if not understated. And we know uh, if Canada is going to meet our uh, commitments under the Paris Accord on, on climate change, that we have to increase our ambition. Warnock says the people she represents don't want to get in the way of that ambition. They want to be part of the transformation to green energy. The pathway to lower carbon economy goes directly through their livelihoods, through their lives, through their communities. We have a lot to say about this and a direction that we think is good for us to go. And that is just transition. Now, you've probably heard that phrase, just transition, before. We actually did an entire episode on it a few months ago. It's supposed to be a detailed legislated plan that helps workers in carbon-intensive industries like oil and gas move into greener jobs. In 2019, the Liberals campaigned on it, saying they would bring in a Just Transition Act if elected. So there's no legislation yet, and Warnock wonders if it was all just talk. We're very concerned that the government hasn't done the work to plan for just transition. There's uh, energy transformation happening. Get in front of it. The EU, for example, has brought in mechanisms to uh, support workers in their communities through the transition, and it's mainstreamed into their climate action. Hi, I'm Sandra Bartlett. I produced the Salmon People podcast about the fight to save wild salmon. 
Now I'm back with The Poison Detectives, a podcast about a nasty chemical that's poisoning the world. Yes, poisoning the world. It's a man-made chemical family called PFAS, and there are more than 12,000 chemicals in this family. It's in the material that firefighting suits are made from, and one woman went on a quest to find out if it gave her firefighter husband cancer. As fossil fuels continue to be harvested, burned, and exported, there are lots of assurances from government that it can achieve its targets. Angela Carter says that just doesn't add up, that there's a fundamental flaw with Ottawa's plan. She's an associate professor in the Department of Political Science, Balsillie School of International Affairs at the University of Waterloo. She recently co-authored a report called Correcting Canada's One-Eye-Shut Climate Policy. Hi. Hi. Um, I I want to get to the report in a moment, but you're actually joining us today from Newfoundland, and that's a province that relies on fossil fuels um, to backstop most of its economy or a lot of its economy. How big a role has oil and gas played in your life? So that's a really interesting question, because from a fiscal perspective in Newfoundland and Labrador, you're right. In the past, we have had as much as 40% of revenues coming from the oil sector. So it means a lot in terms of, you know, paying for the things that we rely on, public services and so forth. So, you know, I think about it a lot from that perspective. But for me personally, there have been lots of intersections, too. Um, My dad, in the 1980s, just after the Ocean Ranger went down, actually, he went offshore when I was just a little girl. And uh, he was working as a pipe fitter, a tradesperson on an exploratory drill rig. And so you know, there, that really shaped my thinking about what work is like for people in the oil sector, you know, from, from a really young age. Um, but as I got older, both of my brothers also as tradespeople went to work in Alberta's tar sands, oil sands, and um, also, you know, working in different trades like my father had done. So my family's life really intersected with this industry, as does the fiscal fate of my uh, beloved province of Newfoundland and Labrador. So I come at this, you know, from a research perspective, obviously, as a researcher, but I've got a lot of personal stake in it, too. Okay, let's get to your report, then. You call Canada's climate policy one eye shut. What do you mean by that? When we think about the climate issue now globally, there are two ways of thinking about dealing with it. One is on the demand side, and that's thinking about where fossil fuels are consumed, where they're burned. But there's another way of thinking about this problem, and that's on the supply side. So that's thinking about where the resources that are causing the emissions that are driving along the climate crisis, where they're coming from. And what we know is that the lion's share, 70 to 80 percent of emissions that are causing the climate crisis are coming from fossil fuels. So oil, gas and coal. As you say, the title to that report is Canada's One-Eyed Shut Climate Policy. Canada has its eyes shut to the fact that we are major oil and gas producers in this country. And that is not only a major source of our domestic emissions here, but it's also in terms of the global climate impact. uh, It has a very, very big footprint. 
And so you were also seeing, too, that there's a ramping up of that fossil fuel extraction and export? Exactly. So we know that our largest emitting sector in this country is the oil and gas sector, the fastest growing source of emissions by sector. That's the oil and gas sector. So we know in Canada that if we want to take bold, decisive action on bringing emissions down, which we have to do, we've got to do something about bringing down emissions, bringing down production from the oil and gas sector. But when we look at the data, we see that the government of Canada is projecting that oil and gas production is going to increase for nearly the next two decades year over year an increase. And by 2050, we are going to be producing more oil and gas in Canada than we did before the COVID pandemic. So when you put these two facts together, first that the oil and gas sector is the largest and fastest growing emitter. The oil and gas sector is our climate problem in Canada. And you align that with the other fact, which is that the government of Canada is anticipating increasing the production of oil and gas. When you put these two things together, you see what is the greatest dilemma and disconnect in Canadian climate policy. Yeah, I was going to ask you, there was the summit hosted by U.S. President Joe Biden, and it was at that summit after you published the report that that Ottawa increased its 2030 pledge to reduce emissions 40 to 45 percent instead of 30 percent below 2005 levels. And I'm wondering, how do you square that with what you just told us? Well, that's the problem is that we can't and we weren't. So what I think we're seeing is we have bold, bold targets and, and bold commitments that are being announced. But in terms of the policies on the ground that are going to be making that change, It is very difficult to imagine a world in 2050 for Canada or 2030 with these new targets where we're meeting those targets if we don't do anything about the pace of increase of the oil and gas sector, the pace of production. But there's something else here that I think is also fundamentally important, and we just don't talk about it enough. And that's that in Canada, we just need to stop providing the kinds of financial supports that are given to the fossil fuel sector every single year, that alone would make a very big difference into getting the Canadian energy economy onto the track that it needs to be. I, I wanted to ask you, though, uh, the, the what is the impact of that level of production? Um, and what, what I'm talking about here is is the world's sort of carbon budget. How much will that account for out of the world's carbon budget? We calculated all of the oil that the government of Canada anticipates that this country is going to produce from 2021 to 2050. And then we used very standard and also conservative emission factors for that production. And what we find is that our oil production over the next 30 years is going to exhaust about 16% of the remaining global carbon budget. So when someone says to you that Canada is a small player in terms of emissions, that just is not so because we are a major oil and gas exporter and that oil and gas ends up being consumed wherever it's consumed and contributing carbon to our global atmosphere, driving along the climate crisis. What the government of Canada plans on doing is just extracting more oil and gas right up 
to right through 2030 and right on through in 2050 amounts higher even as I've noted before the COVID pandemic. So it seems to me just based on the data and the projections that the government of Canada is making that we don't understand yet what our responsibility is to the global climate crisis. Let me put this to you, though. The federal government has said that it, it will decrease emissions and it will reach its targets that are because of, of using things like carbon capture, for fossil, especially with regard to fossil fuel extraction. Um, how effective can that technology be in getting us to net zero by 2050? If you scratch the surface, what you find is that many of those technologies are actually being used to help boost the production. So various forms of hydrogen becoming a feedstock, um, carbon capture being used to boost the production of mature wells. But I think the bigger question is, why are we using those technologies? Is it that they're becoming a way to give legitimacy to oil and gas production, even to help facilitate the sector? Or is it really about getting to reducing absolute emissions over time? Whichever way you cut it, even if we're starting to get down the emissions per barrel, the point is, is that we're, we're continuing to increase oil and gas extraction. And so we're washing out any benefits that we might see of some of these new technologies. So, I mean, I, I think getting to the, the crooks of the problem here is if we know that fossil fuels are causing the line shear of the climate crisis. At the very least, we can't continue to support the expansion of their extraction. We've got to start getting those numbers down. All right, then instead of increasing production, just how much should Canada be winding down production? Nobody is saying that what needs to happen is that we shut down the industry or we turn off the taps completely. What is being um, proposed and modeled is that we need to start a gradual managed phase out of oil and gas production. And given Canada's historical contribution to the climate crisis, where we could well argue that from a global distributive justice perspective, that Canada should go faster. I think the basic point though, is that we know we need to start that managed wind down. We have to stop expansion. And then we need to look, you know, with an eye on global equity about what Canada's responsibility needs to be in terms of the, the pace of that wind down. Angela Carter, we've covered a lot of territory here. Thank you very much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thank you very much for engaging with this issue. The economics of fossil fuel subsidies have preoccupied our next guest for some time. Vanessa Corkle is an energy analyst with the International Institute for Sustainable Development, and she joins me now. Hello. Hi, Laura. First of all, can you tell me what your reaction was to the federal government's announcement of its newly raised target for 2030? Um, I would say that I was not surprised. Um, we knew that there was going to be an increase. But we also were not expecting a full increase in line with what would be our fair share under the Paris Agreement. So I would say that the target is ambitious, um, but it's also realistic with, with scaled up investments in regulation. But it's not necessarily enough to align with the Paris Agreement and to limiting warming to 1.5 degrees. So we're going to need a lot more to be done in the coming years. Okay, well, there have been a lot of comparisons with the new plan that was introduced by the Biden administration in the United States. Um, first of all, can you just tell me a little, little bit about what the Biden plan entails? 
Yeah, so the American Jobs Plan is a sweeping uh, plan to invest in infrastructure. A lot of it is going towards clean energy infrastructure, things like uh, electric buses, electric vehicles, uh, rail transportation, building retrofits. Um, it also has a lot of not necessarily clean investments as well, but they are putting their money where their mouth is in terms of investing in a clean energy future. Uh, and of course, we also had the January 27th executive order that outlined a number of other concrete measures that the Biden administration will be taking, um, which includes their commitment to uh, phase out fossil fuel subsidies and also deal with um, international finance for fossil fuels. So there's a lot going on in the States. Their investment levels are very high per capita compared to what Canada is doing. Um, and even though we've seen lots of investments in Canada, there's definitely still space to do more to get us on the right path. All right, let's let's zero in on the fossil fuel subsidies aspect. What, what effect could the, the U.S. Um, plan on that have on Canada's strategy? In the recent announcement, uh, the Biden administration has pledged to use the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, the OECD, as a venue to push countries to reduce their funding for fossil fuels. Canada, unfortunately, is is one of the worst in the G7 countries on, on many climate indicators, uh, including our levels of international climate finance, our fossil fuel subsidies and public finance, our emissions per capita. Uh, and so I think having the U.S. pressuring in those spaces is really going to help push Canada to do better. Can you remind us um, of the Canadian government's um, level of subsidies for the fossil fuel industries? Yeah, so with COVID, subsidies actually increased three times. Um, so last year, we were looking at around uh, just under $2 billion a year on fossil fuel subsidies. Um, that said, uh, there's also a, a lot of support that Canada provides through public finance, uh, through agencies like Export Development Canada, uh, who on average provides around $13 billion a year for domestic and international fossil fuel production and exploration. Uh, the government of Canada has committed to phasing out what it calls in inefficient fossil fuel subsidies by 2025. How much progress is it making toward that goal in your view? Um, we have been asking for an update on uh, that commitment for quite a while. Um, we, we keep seeing a recommitment by government. They keep telling us it's, it's something that they're important and that they're watching. Uh, but we have not seen any updates, substantive updates. And one of those is that they committed to do a peer review of their fossil fuel subsidies with Argentina. Um, this review is literally delayed by years. So we're really looking to see an update on that. Uh, and as well, kind of dealing with that elephant in the room of, of public finance um, is really something that I think is gaining momentum. We've seen increased announcements in the past year or so from countries like the United Kingdom phasing out their overseas finance for fossil fuels. And that's really something where Canada is a laggard. And we really would like to see more movement on that file um, and not hide behind the word inefficient. All right. But it has it says it has eliminated eight tax subsidies already. How does that measure up? Yeah, so that was uh, some commitments that were made a few years ago, and I think actually some of them are being completely phased out this year. But it's important to note that not all tax subsidies for fossil fuels were eliminated, and uh, there's also some funds that have been provided that are either one-off 
uh, subsidies. So that's when government makes a direct investment into uh, a company or a project. And a good example of that is when they provided $275 million to LNG Canada. Um, those kind of one-off investments we do continue to see, and sometimes they can be quite substantial. Tie this together for me. Why would ending subsidies make any difference to emissions and reaching emissions targets? So there's two quick answers to this. The first is that subsidies, put plainly, make the cost of business cheaper for oil and gas production and exploration. So when you eliminate subsidies, uh, the cost of business goes up, and that in itself can create a disincentive for companies to explore and produce fossil fuels. But if you want to talk about from a technical perspective, our team actually did economic modeling a couple years ago to show what the impact of fossil fuel subsidy phase out would actually have on emissions. Uh, And we studied a number of countries worldwide. And we found on average, that by phasing out fossil fuel subsidies, countries could have up to 6% decrease in their national emissions. So this is a critical tool that countries, including Canada, should be using uh, when they go and update their emissions targets under the United Nations and be using this to push beyond our current targets to get really to, so we can increase our global ambition. Vanessa Corkle, thank you very much. Thanks so much, Laura. That does it for us this week. If you missed any of the show, just head to CBC Listen. Thanks this week to our colleagues Ineath Singh and Alice Hopton in Toronto. And every week to the What on Earth team. Associate producer Jennifer Van Evra, producers Lisa Johnson and Molly Siegel. Our engineer is Matthias Wilson. Monisha Janakaram is our senior producer. I'm Laura Lynch. Thank you for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.